Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today, we're continuing our series, the one I started four or five weeks ago, for selecting therapy activities for toddlers and preschoolers who are light talkers. Now, why is this important? (laughs) Here's the gist of this whole series. When we consider where a child is developmentally, meaning that we are not using therapy activities or if you're a mom or dad at home working with your own child, play activities so that you can teach language. If we find that just right developmental level, even with their play skills, and we match that with what kids really, really like, we are much more apt to have a cooperative, participatory child and those children, if you have worked for more than two seconds with any, with any child in your capacity as a therapist or as a parent, you'll know that a happy kid who likes what you're doing and who, again, isn't so challenged that they're frustrated and isn't so bored that they want to get the heck away from you, we know that that's the most optimal learning state And so, for a child and any kid, whether they're typically developing or whether they are the little late talkers that we so love and talk about every week on this show. And so we know that finding that just right spot and matching what a kid can do and is good at and enjoys will, again, provide a much better learning environment. And and we're talking about language in this show, but honestly, it's anything, any kind of concept that we're teaching a child. And so these are the kinds of ideas that we've been discussing over the past several weeks. And this activity hierarchy is from uh, material that I've taught for a long time. If you want it in the written form, get yourself a copy of my book, Teach Me to Talk, the Therapy Manual. If you're more of... um, If you're a therapist and want a CEU course that outlines this a little bit, it's in my course, Early Speech Language Development, Taking Theory to the Floor. But we've spent the past several weeks here on the podcast talking about this hierarchy or this sequence of activities that we use with toddlers. And I'm pulling this from my own experience as well as research, which means this is evidence-based in in the context that we know these things work for children. Now, there's not one study that we can point to that will say do it this way or use this, this sequence of activities, but it's a good one. And we, again, I know that it works from personal experience as well as putting together all of the wonderful information that we get from studies who tell us to Go with what a kid likes, meaning follow a kid's lead. Let him pick some of the activities. Do what he enjoys because, again, you're you're much, 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 much more likely to have a kid who wants to stay with you. And when kids stay with you, it's much easier to teach them anything. So uh, that's where we are. That's the background. Now, if you are just joining us, this is show number 299. I cannot believe that we have around 300 podcasts done since uh, 2008 so it's I love the show and I love to continue to bring this information to parents and therapists all over the world but if you've not joined us if this is one of your first shows this series actually is back at show number 295 so you can go back and listen to all the kinds of activities that lead up to 
early sensory activities, which is or sensory activities, which is what we're discussing today. Now, what is a sensory activity? If that's a new term for you, sensory activities are any kind of play that you use with the kid that engages multiple avenues of learning, meaning that he uses all of his little senses, so things he can see, things he can touch, things he can hear and smell, things that move differently or he moves differently or he feels differently in his little body, in his skin, when he's using these new kinds of uh, play experiences and play materials. Now, these activities are fantastic for promoting problem solving. Now, what do I mean by that? That means that a kid sees something in his environment. He can't figure out what it's for or or he's he's trying to just, and so he wants to figure out, hey, you know, how do I use this toy? How does this work? And we know that that's an important part of cognitive maturation, meaning that a child, when he's six months old, nine months old, he doesn't know how to play with a toy, but as he approaches that first birthday and as he's learned more and more and more about his world as he gets even older 18 months 24 months we know that play progresses kids kids learn that they think differently they acquire new skills and so again this kind of play using the kinds of things that we're going to talk about today really promote that cognitive development because they provide novelty meaning new opportunities for problem solving now, some therapists introduce these kinds of activities a lot earlier in this developmental sequence than I do, but here's why I wait <laughs> for these kinds of sensory activities. I don't do these kinds of things until I know that a child is safe. And so what do I mean by safe? Meaning that lots of the things that we're talking about today can potentially be hazardous. So if we're making a sensory box and filling it with dried pasta or dried beans, we don't want a kid to try to uh, mouth that and then uh, choke or have some kind of other accident where he's ingesting or trying to eat these materials that look edible but really that we want to play with him so if a kid is really really still mouthy and I know that's not a real professional term but it's one that parents and therapists alike understand if a kid is if I'm really going to have to do lots of careful supervision during an activity it's not that therapeutic for me meaning that I can't get to my end goal which is teaching language and improving cognition because I'm so worried that a kid might try to eat the shaving cream or you know eat the play-doh and so we certainly don't want or I don't want to use an activity that's supposed to facilitate learning and participation and when I'm you know on the edge of my seat thinking is this kid going to choke here so that's just a word of caution and so again I know a lot especially our friends who are OTs and our other colleagues maybe you know maybe an or a daycare teacher might think about these things but in general common sense kind of kicks in and you think i'm not going to use this with this kid if i think that he might choke on it so that's another reason that i kind of save these activities until i know that i can trust the kid and not have to be just you know constantly sweeping his mouth for things that he's tried to eat that are not safe for him I also don't do these kinds of sensory activities with children until they attend to me regularly. And here's why. For so many of these kinds of things that we're going to talk about, they are super, super, super enticing for children who have sensory processing differences, meaning that a kid really can kind of get lost in 
digging his hands down in the beans or in water play. And they're so intrigued by this, as they should be, but developmentally they're just not to the point that they can shift their attention, meaning they can include me with that activity. Now, we know that lots of typically developing children, even younger babies, right at 12, 15 months, can certainly, even younger than that, include another person during this kind of play because uh, let's think about water play. Kids like to play with their parents in the bathtub. They they enjoy moms and dads who are fun and who play with them and do do more than wash them <laughs> during a bath. So it's kind of a red flag when we can't engage a child's attention during these kinds of activities. So if I have a kid who gets super, super, super lost or involved and can't let me in there, he's not going to learn language. You have to hear words and process what other people are saying to you and pay attention and include other people before that really, really becomes a therapeutic activity. And again, some people don't really think about it like that. They'll think learning is learning, and yes, it is. But when we're talking about language, you have to hear somebody else talk. Before you're able to talk yourself, you don't learn language in an isolated, independent environment. It always takes hearing it and having someone else who is talking to you. And and when you're little like this, who's going out of their way to teach you and help you link meaning with what you're experiencing with your other senses and and at what you hear. Excuse me. So it's super, super important to me that I have a kid who's developmentally ready and uh, from a regulatory standpoint, uh, regulation-wise, who can shift that attention between what he's looking at and what he's feeling and what he's experiencing and let me share that with him. So if any any of these materials seems to detract or minimize my opportunity for getting in there and really teaching language, I wait. I wait until that kid is further along developmentally so that he can include me. Now here's the nice thing about this these sensory play opportunities. A lot of times they do start as uh, a cooperative or a shared play experience with an adult and over time when you know that children are safe and if they like it, you can use these ideas for independent play. And that's really, really important for parents. All of us as parents need time where we can take a shower or uh, talk on the phone or perform some kind of household task where we don't have a child under our feet and where he's safely engaged in doing something on his own. And that's an important part as well. But particularly for teaching language, we want to make sure that we are using these activities with a kid, knowing that we can move them to independent play and that exploratory kinds of play and the kinds of things that kids learn when they're playing on their own are, again, I'm I'm not saying that those aren't important. They are a critical part of childhood learning. But at the same time, uh, we're going to start with these activities together. Uh, an adult and a child. All right, let's talk about some uh, another little list here that I've compiled of the benefits of sensory activities so that if you haven't used these kinds of things before that maybe I can convince you that these are worthwhile things for you to pursue uh, if you're a therapist and are looking for new ideas to use with children during your therapy time or if you're a parent and you just want to, again, expand the kinds of things that you use to work with your child there at home and teach your child uh, how to understand and use words. So 
what are the benefits? What are the why are these sensory activities a good idea? Well, first of all, they add variety, and so meaning that you're not doing the same old thing all the time. You know, a lot of times with uh, just my own caseload, I'll think I need some new toys. I need some new things to do. I'm bored, and I know that if I am bored that likely my little one, two, and three-year-old friends are bored too. So certainly it's a way to add that novelty. It's a way to introduce new things, a way to get children to, again, expand what they like to do. So I like that that idea here that just by bringing in some new materials and some new even containers, some ways to kind of package or structure our therapy activities that we can certainly do a lot to um hook a child's attention and bring him in and help him want to stay with us for longer and longer periods of time and increase his interest. Another benefit of these sensory activities is they build attention to task. So if you've had a kid who really will play with a toy for, you know, 10 seconds and then he's moved on to something else and then he moves on to something else 15 seconds later and then he moves on to something else five seconds later and then, you know, 30 seconds later you think, oh, maybe I have him and then he's moving on again. A lot of times these sensory activities, because a child isn't just looking at something or isn't just uh, manipulating something with his little hands, there's a lot more to feel and hear and even smell. So that may be more um, engaging for a child and may help keep and build his really, really short attention span. So I love sensory activities for that reason. These kinds of activities also address what a kid needs so that he learns uh, to stay with something, to like it, to tolerate it, and again, to explore new things that he may not have even noticed as he's going about his day before. Here's the thing about sensory needs, too, with these sensory activities. You know, they share that common word there. <laughs> and, and let me tell you the benefit. Busy kids can significantly calm down when we introduce these kinds of tactile or feeling activities and many many times low arousal kids meaning kids who are a little bit detached or they don't seem to really be with you and as involved or participating as much as you would like sometimes kids get almost an energy boost from these kinds of activities so they are able to pay attention to you and include you and stay with you for longer periods of time Sensory activities, especially the ones that we're talking about today, too, can significantly improve a child's fine motor skills by giving him opportunities for new kinds of object use. So remember fine motor skills if you're a parent. Gross motor includes things that you do with your big muscles, running, jumping, walking, crawling. Fine motor are our more refined movements that we uh, particularly use our hands for. And so we'll be talking about lots of ways that we can improve a child's fine motor skills during these kinds of play activities. I've already mentioned uh, the social component or the joint attention component, meaning that sometimes kids will like these activities so much that they can't include you. But let's look at the opposite. Sometimes kids really enjoy the toys or the other kinds of activities or even just kind of their their daily routines seem kind of mundane to them but we bring in something that's completely new and voila 
you've got their attention. They are looking at you more than they've ever looked before. They are including you and sharing and participating in this experience with you unlike any other play that you have ever tried. So for some kids, it really works kind of the opposite way. Also with sensory activities, it's a prime opportunity to teach a child to tolerate peers. <laughs> now, of course, we want him to enjoy playing with other kids his own age and to like that. And, you know, that's what communication is all about. Eventually, we want him talking to other children and listening to other children. But before that happens, kids have to be in the, the phase of what professionals call parallel play. And that means that children just learn to play side by side. Now, lots of our children with social skill issues, meaning that they avoid other people or they tend to ignore other people. And even some of our little friends who have developmental delays, anytime another child approaches them, instinctively they just try to get away. They're not really, they don't really understand other kids <laughs> or what another child might be doing, or they may not even be aware that another, that another kid is even there. So these kinds of sensory play activities can certainly provide an opportunity for that early social skill development. And there's some things that we can do uh, to promote interaction with peers during these activities. We might position kids differently, meaning that we make sure that children aren't side by side. We'll put them across from each other so that they can look at each other. And so perhaps if they look up at the same time another child is looking up, eye contact, even if it's accidental, <laughs> we've gotten that going. Other things that we can do to promote early peer interaction would be providing enough tools or enough accessories that we're going to talk about in a minute for everybody to have something to do, but you don't want to make sure that uh, you, you want, well, let me say it this way. You want to make sure that there are opportunities for early sharing and early contact for reasons that children would have to learn how to look at each other and interact with each other without promoting that bitter rivalry <laughs> that we can sometimes see when toddlers start to fight over things, when there aren't enough shovels for everyone or where everyone doesn't have something to hold. Now, that, that's counterintuitive. You've just set yourself up for failure if you've done that. If you've put three kids with a box of sand and you have one shovel, you are just pretty much guaranteeing uh, meltdowns and fights and other kinds of aggressiveness that you don't want to see. But if you're making sure that there, you know, there are three children and one shovel, but there are two buckets and a couple of cars or trucks, then kids do have an opportunity to play and do have uh, a chance to, to use whatever they want to use. But they do have to learn how to share that shovel and take turns with that. But, again, you don't want to do that too early so that you're making a kid who's not developmentally ready to share, um, making him so uncomfortable and so mad that he doesn't want to stay with you. So we don't want to do that. But, again, there's, there's a fine line that we have to really walk. And these kinds of sensory activities, again, can help children learn how to recognize that other kids are there in their space and that they can all get along and coexist, <laughs> maybe even better than other kinds of initial play activities and toys that we might try. And certainly, I, I don't think I've mentioned this yet, but let me say it, here another benefit of using sensory activities 
is that we teach a lot of cognitive concepts. We talked about cognitive maturation and just that kids learn to do more and more and more and more. But here we can really set up these experiences so that they can do things like sort and match and compare. And again, this is in a really developmentally appropriate way. You know, an 18-month-old is not going to be able to say to you, you know, gee, this... Uh, uh, you know, whatever you have in your uh, sensory box, you know, they're not going to say, gee, I believe this sand is more coarse than this sand, you know, that kind of compare, comparing and comparison. So they don't have a language skills for that, but they are learning and they are seeing with their little eyes and they are able to start to note these kinds of differences even if they can't really explain it yet. And that's why you're there. You're the parent. You're the adult, the therapist. You're the one who helps put words with all of these new concepts that they're learning. But certainly sensory activities provide a wonderful opportunity for us to structure these kinds of learning opportunities that help children um, develop their cognition. Now, let's just address this and get this out of the way because it's certainly something that moms will talk about. And if you're a therapist, you may feel a little bit like this too, but sometimes adults don't like the sensory play because it's a mess. <laughs> and it's, uh, again, a, a little harder to clean up sand and water and dried pasta and you know maybe bird seed or whatever we're talking about materials in a minute but it's a lot harder to clean that up than it is to clean up a you know a, a stack of blocks but don't let that keep you from trying this kind of play and let me just give you what I found to be my best tips for managing the mess over the years because I'll just tell you I'm kind of that happy medium person with this mess you know, I like for kids to experience new things and to, especially when kids have been kind of in a limited environment, meaning that moms haven't been so um, eager to try these kinds of play opportunities. And so then when you introduce them, you know, a kid just gets so excited and then mom gets so excited. But let me just say, you know, when it's in my own therapy space or my own house, you know, I get a little wigged out about Play-Doh smushed in the carpet too. <laughs> So that's natural and that's normal. So let's talk about what we can do to contain the mess. So first of all, get kids ready. You are not going to want them to wear their best clothes. Uh, I like to strip kids down. So if they are playing, if we're going to play in water, you know, and I'll say to mom, listen, this looks kind of like a nice little outfit, or you may want him to wear this after we're finished. You just want to take that off and we'll just, you know, let him not get anything too wet that would uh, that he needs to wear later, or do you have some other clothes that you would rather put on him? You know, you can certainly, if it's cold, you know, if you want to put slide a bigger size T-shirt over his clothes, that would be fine. Or, you know, cute little art smocks. If you want to be that fancy, you can get those little vinyl smocks so that it really protects the kid's clothes. But that's a big thing that parents are kind of afraid of, especially if a child is coming to you. So if you are in a a center-based program or an office or a school, a parent might be a little bit more reluctant to have their child covered in mess and then put them back in the car seat to ride home or if they had planned, you know, another stop before uh, they are returning home from therapy, you know, that may not be the best idea. So do what you can to think about preparing a kid, getting a kid ready uh, with his clothes. The second option here is just go outside. It's a lot easier to 
throw things away or not worry about uh, something getting sticky or wet or dirty. If you're playing outside in the on the porch or in the driveway or the backyard or even in the garage or somewhere that's a little bit more contained. So that's certainly a tip too. When my children were little, you know, I didn't want paint in the main living area. You know, we did that a lot of times outside on a picnic table or, again, even just sitting right outside the door uh, on the porch or on the sidewalk. So that's really fun, too. If you're inside, protect your area. As I always say, you know, contain the mess. So you may do something like just putting down a blanket that you can throw in the washing machine if it gets too dirty. Or even if there's something, if you're a therapist and you're doing a lot of home visits and you still have the luxury of taking your own toys, <laughs> something like a plastic tablecloth or a shower curtain, oh, you know, a, a shower curtain. I don't want to say an old shower curtain because to me that would be gross. You know, a new $2 shower liner would be a lot better. But something that you can wipe off or wash off and then fold it up, stick it back in your car, and then use it for the next kid. So think think about that. Think about how you could contain it that way. And let me just say, using something like a tablecloth or even a sheet will really set up a boundary for a child. And you can say, you know, we stay here, we play here, and if they start to get off, you'll say, you know, uh-uh-uh, or no, no, come back. You know, the Play-Doh stays here, or we only play with water here, right here. And so really that visual boundary will do a whole lot to keep um, many, many toddlers contained once you are pretty direct and pretty consistent about not letting them leave the area. That they leave where you have marked for them to play, of course, you take away whatever the material is. So if they're trying to take their shovel full of sand off the the mat there, you know, take the shovel away and say, no, 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 shovel stays here. And so, again, you're you're helping them learn how to stay where they're supposed to be, especially with messy play. Uh, another tip here is, is using disposable and washable materials. You know, I was thrilled, I guess, you know, 20 years ago when the first markers came out that were washable. And so... Pay attention to that and think about how uh, even the materials that you're using, you want to be sure that they are not going to be damaging to clothes or furniture or carpet. One thing I've already mentioned here is limiting access to messy materials. So you would never, let's say that we're finger painting, or let's say that, uh, again, we'll use an example like from our sensory boxes. Let's say that we have rice in a sensory box. You would never let a kid wag that all over the house, and you would certainly never give him a 10-pound bag <laughs> or dump a 10-pound bag of rice into the box. You'll just put a little bit in there or just enough for you to accomplish whatever the task is. So really, really control that as the adult. You know, you don't – just because we're doing these things doesn't mean that a kid can have – you know, again, 10 colors of Play-Doh at one time to smush into the rug and the curtains and the couch and everything else. Really, really, really control your materials. And again, that provides an, an opportunity for communicating. If he doesn't have something he wants, he has to request, whether it's with a word or a sign or even just something like um, eye contact or 
a gesture. And so, again, you'll want to be sure that you were controlling that too, not only from a mess perspective, but from a communication perspective. And lastly, one tip that I use all the time that a lot of times moms just don't think about is we teach cleaning up as a part of the play routine. So that if a kid has gotten, you know, lots and lots of beans on the floor if we're playing in a bean box you know we teach him to pick those up we don't let him throw if he does throw if we can't catch his little hand before he launches it across the room we stop what we're doing and we go have him pick up those beans he's much less likely to create a mess <laughs> if he's part of cleaning it up and then just other common sense kinds of strategies here have a little dustpan and a broom available if there's if you're using something dried that you need to that you'll need to sweep up or your vacuum cleaner or um, a wet rag or baby wipes or anything like that if you're using something that's wet and sticky and that you might need to wipe up so be prepared have all your cleaning materials right there so that you're not having to leave the child for him to create even more havoc so that you can go get the vacuum have it ready to go so again it becomes part of the play routine now i'm going to share with you what i consider to be my go-to sensory activities, meaning these are things that I've used, that I've had good luck with. But here's the truth. You can Google or search, uh, you know, again, Google, whatever, Bing, whatever search engine you use, uh, just the phrase sensory play activities for toddlers or sensory ideas for toddlers and get hundreds or thousands of ideas so many great mommy bloggers have done a super job of coming up with creative idea after creative idea after creative idea my purpose here in the show today is just to get you started just to give you some you know uh, hit the ground running activities that you can try but you can certainly spend some time on the internet and there are tons of books about this as well if you want to make a more permanent investment particularly if you're a therapist get yourself some books now usually OTs and early educators have done more of these than speech language pathologists have but again you can find so many activities out there and really adapt the activity to whatever um, language goal that you're working on now let me give you these ideas first and then before we finish up the show I'll review the, the language strategies that we're using. But let me just tell you the language strategies pretty consistently uh, are pretty consistent. They remain the same from activity to activity to activity. And that's why I always say we can teach language, you know, anytime, anywhere. It really doesn't matter what you're doing. We will review that at the end. But until then, let's just zip through uh, these sensory activities that I have found in my own personal experience to be wonderful for eliciting participation from toddlers, keeping them with you, and certainly for teaching uh, language and cognition. So our first number one sensory activity that I have found to be universally appealing to toddlers is water play. And again, we all know that because most children take a bath every few days. <laughs> and most parents will say, <clears throat> boy he is happy in the tub he likes the water or they'll say you know if they are somewhere out uh, doing 
a community outing. Let's say they've gone to the science museum. I had a little guy this summer whose mom said, you know, I didn't, I wasn't prepared for the water display at the children's museum. I think they went to Indianapolis or something. And she said, he, uh, that's all he did. He was pretty much in there the whole time. I should have brought extra clothes. And again, uh, just lots and lots and lots of children explore, uh, love exploring water. They really, really enjoy it. So, what can we do with water play? Well, again, you can start if you're a parent with something like in the bathtub. And you're going to play maybe splashing games to get their attention and imitation going, meaning that you smack your hand down in the water and say splash or whoa or ooh or something. And then you'll wait. You'll look expectantly at that child for him to want to do that too. Now, for those of you who are thinking, you know, sensory play, I'm I'm really into what the child feels and what the child experiences. You know, my purpose with sensory play is just to, again, teach a kid to do new things, but I'm always thinking about the language piece, and I'm always thinking about teaching him how to communicate. So, again, I, I want to be part of that routine. I want to be there. I want him to let me in and play with him. So even these things that don't sound like, you know, let's just say if you were listening to an OT, an occupational therapist, do a podcast about sensory play, they may not be including these little tips to get interaction going, or that may not even be their focus. You know, their focus for the child might be totally different in that they're helping the child settle down or they're helping the child um, build that longer attention span, or they're helping normalize sensations that we'll talk about in a minute, meaning that kids who are tactically defensive or who get, as I say, icked out if their hands are dirty. That may be their purpose, so they maybe aren't including the kinds of interactive goals that we're in social skill goals that we're looking at like eye contact like joint attention like imitation but I don't want us to lose sight of that piece you know our sensory activities here are just you know our strategy they're just what we're using to get to our end goal which is communication so back to water play in the bathtub you will model simple actions that you want the child to imitate and you can use toys here, you know, pushing a boat, things like cups and spoons and uh, even little, your plastic toys like animals, like ducks and, as I already mentioned, boats. Use those things, model a simple little play action there and see if you can get the kid to imitate. And again, water is a great way to get that going. Now, if you have a kid who won't attend to you because he likes the water so much, <laughs> you have two options. You can either, either save water play for later or two, make yourself that he can't possibly resist including you in that activity as well. So that might mean that you get your face right down there where he can see that you are positioning him where he's more likely to include you. Now that's a little bit harder in the bathtub. So let's, unless you're in there too, which I've not done, but I'm not going to say that I, you know, well, I guess I probably would say that. But certainly you can get your, your that, you know, never get in the bathtub with a kid or a shower or whatever, certainly in the pool with a kid. But get your face right down there. If you're not willing to get wet yourself or to do something so that you can make sure that, you know, you're turning him around and you're keeping him with you, the bathtub may not be the way to go. So let's think about other ways that we can introduce water play 
uh, with children. The kitchen sink is a lot of fun, and I bet that if you're a therapist, you've noticed this, that if a kid's got messy and you're going to go wash your hands, especially if you're at a daycare or a little preschool, boy, you can do a lot of good therapy over at the sink washing hands. So even in a home, you can put water in the sink and pull up a chair or, you know, however, whatever you're going to do to get the kid where he's close enough to the sink, pour in a lot of, you know, extra Blue Dawn <laughs> or whatever dish soap that you use to make mounds and mounds of foamy bubbles. You can squeeze those bubbles in your hands and talk about that and play some games with that. One of my favorite things to do when I have a a sink full of uh, soapy water with lots and lots of foam so that the kid can't see my hands is I'll hide my hands down in the under the bubbles and say, you know, where they go, you know, where are my hands, where where are my fingers, whatever words you want to use, and then, you know, jerk your hands up and say, boo, or there they are, or hands, or whatever your word is there. So, so much fun just being together like that and coming up with these little silly things. And again, you can pat those bubbles, you can blow the bubbles, you can, as we already said, squeeze the bubbles. Those are so many fun things to do. And you can get a kid to stay with you 10, 15 minutes if you are fun enough and are kind of changing what you could do. You could swirl your fingers around and, you know, kind of, you know, say you're making circles or you could do even like a car or a boat sound, you know, you know, as you're swirling your hand in the water. And again, your goal here is what? You want the kid to stay with you. You want him to look at you. You want him to laugh and, and smile and enjoy himself. You want him looking at the bubbles and then looking back up at you. And, you know, again, that's joint attention. Uh, you want him uh, copying or imitating the kinds of movements that you're doing there. And he certainly can introduce something new, and you would copy him. And you're not really going to say, you know, we're going to cut this out if you can't do what I do. You know, you've got to be fun. And you've got to model the action for them to imitate. But remember, your your most important goal is just building that attention span and building that time that he stays with you. Now, another fun thing to do in the kitchen sink is uh, wash some dishes. Older toddlers and preschoolers love washing dishes. So it's such a nice bridge to pretend play. Get yourself, you know, some plastic dishes, you know, maybe the the cups and uh, little plates or bowls and utensils that he even eats from. And again, don't put 55 pieces in there at one time. Just put, you know, three or four little things. You know, don't overwhelm a child with too many options and too many choices here. So just a few little plastic dishes. Get yourself maybe even some uh, a brush, a dish brush, or, you know, just some rags so that you can teach a kid how to uh, or you know, model washing dishes here. And you know, just go to town, have a good time, sing, you know, this is the way we wash the plate, wash the plate, wash the plate, you know, that little song, you know, this is the way we wash the plate early in the morning, you can sing a little song or even just build a verbal routine and say, you know, wash, 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 make it clean, you know, whatever, come up with whatever your little rhyme or Ditty is there and make it really, really fun. And kids like that repetitiveness and that chanting. And they'll a lot of times stay with you. And you may not have gotten them to imitate any kind of play ever or any kind of action ever with a toy. But you bring, you, you take them to the sink, you know, you have the bubbles there, you have the dishes. You've really set the stage for that to be super fun. And if it's novel enough to capture their attention 
meaning that they've never done it before or haven't done it a whole lot or you've somehow made it a little bit different than mom has ever done, again, that is such a nice way to engage a busy toddler's attention when he just really, really, really has spent most of his other time trying to get away from you. So super, super idea that I've had a lot of success with. The next kind of water play that you can do is just get yourself, um, if the sink and the bathtub are too much and you want to still control it a little bit, which is my favorite kind of water play, is get yourself a plastic container. So a Rubbermaid or another, you know, brand of those little plastic bins. My favorite one, especially if there's more than one kid, is to get the kind that's designed to slide under the bed so sweater boxes or shoe, you know not just a shoe box a little box but a big long rectangular box that they're kind of shallow maybe six inches I don't know I'm terrible with dimensions and numbers and and that kind of thing <laughs> but you don't want one that's too deep for this kind of play and but even a smaller one even one that's like a um, dish pan that you can pick up at Dollar Tree or Walmart or you know some other cheaper kind of place. Those kinds of uh, boxes are fantastic because again it is more controlled. You've got a smaller amount of water here but you can still implement the same kinds of ideas that we've talked about. Now we'll talk a little bit more about sensory boxes in a minute but you can certainly use that kind of sensory box for water play. You'll just put your toys in or put your accessories in. Now, let's go ahead and talk about accessories and toys here. I think about accessories here as my tool. Now, what do I mean by that? We all know that we use tools as adults. Now, if you're a parent, you're thinking a hammer, a screwdriver. But really, think about the tools that we use during everyday life. We brush our hair with a tool, with a hairbrush. We brush our teeth with a tool. It's a toothbrush. We eat with tools, with our utensils. We write with tools, with pencils and pens, and we color with crayons and markers. Those are all tools. And, and writing and brushing your teeth and brushing your hair, all, this, all that wonderful tool use that we all use even as adults really begins when you're a toddler and learning how to manipulate things with your hands and use an object for a purpose so meaning again back to that problem solving piece so we want to provide children lots of opportunities to develop those kinds of skills not only from a cognitive perspective meaning that they understand you know hey it's going to I can I can make this water swirl around faster and better if I use the spoon and I don't have to get my hands in it you know this is my tool or I can get this food to my mouth more efficiently with this fork because it's a tool. You know, not only from that cognitive understanding what an object is for, or using that object according to its function, but from a fine motor perspective, they certainly need that practice with their little hands to develop the, the fluidity of their movements, meaning that it's smooth, meaning that they learn how not to spill when they're holding something on their spoon. They're learning, again, from a cognitive perspective about size and about dimensions, meaning that, you know, how much is too much? What will fit on the spoon and what will fall off? So, so many things that they can learn. So when we're looking for these kinds of tools or accessories for sensory play, rate the kitchen. <laughs> I love spatulas and soup ladles and even large spoons with holes. Those are just the best when you're playing in sand with kids. 
look for measuring spoons, measuring a plastic measuring cups, you know, bigger cups. So, it, you know, if you're talking about playing with sand with a mom and she says, you know, I don't have any sand buckets, I don't have any shovels, you don't need that. Go to the kitchen and get uh, utensils and, and uh, different accessories for a child to be able to use like that. And again, do not underestimate the power of really simple play here. Stirring with giant spoons is fun. <laughs> you can have three or four different spoons there, and a kid will just experiment and experiment and experiment and stay with it and stay with it and stay with it. So look at what a family already has. Or if you're a mom, you know, don't feel like you have to go out and buy a lot of new things to make. <coughs> Excuse me, let me get a drink. Don't feel like you have to spend a lot of money and go out and buy a lot of new stuff. Now, that's always fun, and that always gets me excited about doing something new with a kid. And if you need that little bump to keep yourself excited, by all means, do it. But don't feel like that you have to wait and plan excessively for these kinds of activities because you really can find most of these things in almost any home. So look around for what a child uh, already has, what a family already has. Water tables, if you want to go really, really big here and really fancy, if a family has the room or if you're in a clinic setting or school setting, water tables are a super fun option for toddlers. Now, I've linked at teachmetotalk.com every podcast that I do. And you may not know this if you were just, <clears throat> excuse me, used to listening um, to the podcast from your phone or in, in your car, you know, from your iPad even if you're at home, you may not have ever gone and taken the time to check out the written post that accompanies the podcast. But on the po all the posts for this series of shows, I've linked from Amazon examples of all of the toys and materials that we've talked about. Now, today I have some water tables linked. So, you know, Christmas is coming up. And if you're, you're a parent and you're looking for, you know, you think, boy, I have every toy known to man. I don't know what in the world I'm going to get this year or what I'm going to tell his grandmother to get him. A water table is a good idea. You can not only use water in it, but I've put sand in mine. Um, any other, the other kinds of fillers that we're going to talk about, you can certainly use that with a water table. But it's a good investment. And I've found, too, a lot of times just getting a kid to stand up while he plays rather than sitting down. Now, sometimes it makes them more apt to leave because they're already on their feet. But a lot of times it really kind of holds their attention because – they're getting uh, proprioceptive feedback that they wouldn't otherwise get. Now, if you're a parent, that might be a new word for you, but that, meaning they feel differently about where their little body is in space, uh, standing up versus sitting. And for some kids, that might be more regulating. They might be more apt to stay with you. And again, that might be a little counterintuitive because you're thinking, like I already said, well, he can get away faster. At least when he's sitting, I can grab him before he leaves. But some kids might need that. They might need to shift their weight and, and to want to stay longer. They just might feel a little bit more comfortable if they're and a little bit more in control if they're allowed to stand up to play. So water tables can be good. Even a child-sized table, even just a, a coffee table or, you know, a, a, an end table in your den, put the box that we're talking about, the sensory box, or put, you know, your plastic bin or whatever up on the table. And let the kids stand. If you're not having good luck with sensory play as they're sitting, try that one little tip and see if just switching standing versus sitting will make a difference. Now, certainly with water play, oh, outside is just the best here, especially, well, when it's warm and when it's not going to be uncomfortable for a child to be wet in the cold. 
these same kinds of ideas that we've talked about, you can do in a baby pool, you can do in the real pool. And again, imitation games are so fun here. So not just splashing, but try some kicking games where uh, you know, you kick the water or you're modeling that, even standing up when, you know, just feet only in the kid's baby pool while he's sitting in there. A lot of parents may even be okay with moving that baby pool indoors for a few months when it's been colder. And you can certainly have water in there, but you can make a little ball pit with that plastic baby pool. So just think about the things that you can do. And again, you know, what would add a sensory component here, meaning what would the kid like to see and feel and you know hear as we're playing and, and, and move through? So think about those things too. And, and this is what I was saying uh, before about the link to the written post. You can get all of these ideas that we're talking about today. If you're thinking, oh, I forgot what she said about that. Or she said something and I can't, I can't remember what it was. What did she say? Go back and look at the written post because a lot of times the ideas are here and it'll just jog your memory in a different way and help you uh, maybe come up with an idea. Maybe these ideas will just be launching points for you that you'll think, oh, she said this, but look how I can expand that and make that idea even better. So take a look at the written post here. Now, we've talked about water play. Let's move on and talk about other kinds of sensory play. Let's talk about making sensory boxes. Now, when we do this, what we're doing is we're taking that same Rubbermaid container that we talked about earlier so another plastic container get something that's durable and sturdy that you can use over and over and over again and then you'll just pick a filler and I've already talked about a lot of different fillers like sand or dried beans or rice or pasta or cornmeal dried corn is even a lot of fun and you can get that at places uh, like um, pet stores or if you live in a rural part of the world like me, you know, Tractor Supply, <laughs> a store like that, uh, in, it, even rocks. Yesterday I was at Lowe's looking for something else and I saw just those bags of smooth river rocks. And you don't even have to be that fancy. You can just go gather gravel, you know, from your driveway. Even things like shredded paper that you can get from a dollar store that's uh, the purpose of that really is to fill up a gift bag but that's a really fun material for toddlers Easter grass so fun if you're thinking about that as a more seasonal activity pom-poms cotton balls yarn styrofoam peanuts again especially if a kid you're not scared the kid's going to put it in his mouth so many possibilities for fillers there and so what do you do you put your filler material in and then you'll add other things you'll add the accessories that we talked about before things for digging and dumping and filling so shovels spoons cups anything to scoop we talked about our measuring spoons or our measuring cup sets tongs are a really fun accessory to use in a sensory box so that a kid learns how to manipulate his little fingers to use the tongs i've had children just stay with that for you know 20 30 minutes at a time because it's so uh, they're so curious about it. They're really trying to figure out how do I squeeze these tongs to pick something else up. I have a set of child tongs uh, that I ordered a while ago. I think they're from, I might have gotten them from Super Duper, but I may have gotten them from, um, oh gosh, I can't remember. But I'll try to put that in the link in the post so that you can go back and if you want a child set of tongs, that's a, a really uh, good idea if you're a therapist and want to do that. But if you're a mom, you know, go in your kitchen and, you know, open that drawer and get your 
tongs out that you use for cooking. So that'll be a lot of fun. Even smaller containers here like spice containers or spice jars, meaning that they have holes. You know, you've emptied out the garlic or, you know, the rosemary, whatever came in there. Empty it out, wash it out real good, and then the lid will have the holes. And that's a lot of fun to put sand in there. You know, take the little plastic lid off, fill it up with sand, you know, even with a spoon and show the child how to do that. And, you know, you're creating a verbal routine, probably saying, you know, in, 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 in. And then you put the lid on and then turn it over and pour it out. Kids think that is so fun. Uh, a Parmesan cheese container with holes in the top would work really, really well for that. Even if you wanted to take something like a cottage cheese container or any any kind of, uh, uh, you know, butter or margarine, whatever you use, anything that's come in a tub that's plastic that you can poke holes in the top of the lid and then put something like sand or water in the container, put the lid back on top and then turn it over and watch it fall through the holes. So much fun for toddlers and super, super cheap. You know, those are things you have already. So those are great ideas. Now, so the accessories are important, but any kind of little toy, so any other object that you know will really appeal uh, to a child's preferences. So if he really likes his little Disney characters, you can hide those in your rice or your beans or your sand, whatever you've used. And if it's, if it's a visual kid, you could hide uh, little toys that light up. So, and again, why are you doing that? You are teaching him to stay with you. You're building that attention span. You're teaching him to include you. And you're certainly teaching language as well. You're labeling. And we'll talk about that. Uh, in, I know we're almost out of time, but we'll get to that in just a second. You can also build language themes here. And I've done some great videos about this. I'm linking a Therapy Tip of the Week video uh, for Valentine's Day that I did several years ago that talks about how to set up these uh, language theme boxes. And just because I'm talking about Valentine's Day and using hearts and all things related to love, you can take those same ideas and apply it, you know, we, with fall materials for this time of year or Christmas is coming up. And so you can certainly use the sensory box as a seasonal kind of activity so that you can introduce um, new words and new materials. And certainly there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of blog posts about these kinds of ideas. So just, you know, you would Google or you would go on Pinterest and you would search something like Christmas sensory boxes and come up with so many creative, fun ideas so that you can put those together. Now, you can use even messier sensory play. And again, this is a fun and fantastic way to help a kid normalize or, or desensitize his reactions to getting anything on his hands. We all know kids who have freaked out when um, pudding or yogurt would get on their hands at mealtimes. And so those kids are going to have a harder time in preschool. <laughs> we need to help them learn how to tolerate that kind of incoming information. So how do we make that play easier? We do what we've already talked about. We introduce a tool. So you may not require them to squeeze and touch and really get in there with something like Play-Doh at the beginning, but you might give them a little roller or a little um, pounder, a little hammer. And so certainly Play-Doh sets will have lots and lots of ideas, a little plastic knife so that they could cut the Play-Doh. You know, instead of finger paints, you know, finger painting is so much fun for toddlers. You know, and lots of kids like to cover themselves in that, and that's so much fun. But some kids might not like it, so start with a brush. So think about your tool use in that way too. You might use it to introduce 
them to a new messier play kind of activity, but then you'll help them tolerate it because it's not quite as uh, challenging for their system if they have something else that really uh, does most of the touching for them rather than their little fingers. So even things like shaving cream on a table or the high chair tray or even in the tub or shower, goop, G-O-O-P. <laughs> you can get some homemade recipes where you're just making kind of sticky, wet, goopy uh, material to play with, or certainly there are some commercial products that you can buy, and I'll link that on the bottom of the post, too, if you're interested in that. You can even use foods like cooked spaghetti or pudding or jello. I've put things even in dry snacks for kids to play with. So uh, I made um, a sensory box a couple years ago, and I used it with several clients, and they all liked digging kinds of vehicles, so dump trucks and excavators, and I'm talking about the small kind, not about the you know, the kid size, big version, as big as a child, but just a little, you know, like the little uh, smaller versions. But I crumbled up Oreos, and we called that dirt. And, you know, you can certainly use cotton balls as uh, something if you don't want to use an edible here. But think about how creative you can be and how many cute little play sets and sensory boxes you can make. And, and again, just the novelty of that, so much fun for kids. Now let's quickly review the language strategies that we're going to be using here. Remember, we start with language by teaching kids to understand new words. So you'll certainly be labeling the names of your objects that you're using, you know, shovel, spoon, those kinds of things. But go beyond that. Target new words like uh, prepositions. So in, out, up, down, off, on, under. New action words, so pat, squeeze, squish, scoop, dump, dig, pour, shake, hide, and new descriptive words. Don't get stuck on those color words. So try things like, you know, certainly cold and hot, you know, uh, big and little, but other words that are more descriptive like shiny and smooth and pretty. And even, even kind of the more negative descriptive words, you know, yucky, icky, squishy, you know, even sounds like bleh. You know, those are fun for kids. And we've already talked about how on previous shows about how important introducing exclamatory words would be because they're novel, meaning they're new, and kids are attracted to them. And a lot of times they're easier to say, and they are super, super expressive. So a kid may not be able to say, I don't like how this feels on my hands, but he can say, ooh, and convey the same message. So you're certainly teaching a kid to not only understand new words, but to use new words as well. And I've got a little list of exclamatory words here on the post if you need some reminders about that. You can certainly create some verbal routines here. And I do this all the time, and I have this little client years ago that I'll never forget. It was so hard to kind of connect with this kid. And, boy, I would just try and try and try and try and try and do everything I could to bring in fun toys. And I saw him one day at daycare, and there was a sandbox there. And I have never gotten attention from my sweet little friend like I did the day at the sandbox where I was just saying, you know, scoop and dump and scoop and dump or dig and dump dig and dump and he stayed with me and he looked at me and he laughed and he just had so much fun and we just had spoons standing there at the sand table and he stayed with me and stayed with me and stayed with me to the point you know I'm looking around I, I wanted to say to somebody you know do you believe this can you believe his attention today 
Uh, but again, the teachers knew because they had seen it. They had done it with him. So look at how you can use an activity like uh, you know, sand, like a sensory activity, and then pair it with you being really fun and engaged and playful with the kid. And then you're creating that attention to language just by the verbal routine that you're using. Now, let me remind you, I've got some great links at teachmetotalk.com here on the show post. We're at show number 299. Uh, and today we've talked about sensory activities. Next week, we're moving on to one of my very favorite topics of all time, which is how to introduce early pretend play. Uh, but until then, knock yourself out. Do some fun sensory activities this week. And I'd love to hear your ideas as well. All right, so go make it a great week. We'll be back here next time.